Southwest Crimes contains adult themes, strong language, and violence that is not intended for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 18 of the true crime podcast, Southwest Crime. We are your hosts, Lauren Manguso. And Justin Whitmore. And today we're going to be exploring two cases that have left investigators scratching their heads for many, many years. Both cases pertain to an all-too-familiar scenario of missing children. But for this instance, one case we have the identity of the child, but not the whereabouts. And in the other... We have the whereabouts of the child, but not the identity. Now, before we dive into the stories, I wanted to briefly go over some data that I found while researching this episode that I thought was, you know, worth sharing for this one and any, you know, future missing children episodes that we do. According to the National Center for Missing Missing and Exploited Children, roughly 800,000 children are reported missing each year in the United States. So that's roughly 2,000 per day. And of those, there are 115 um, child stranger abductions. So this is they're abducted by somebody who they absolutely do not know, have not been in contact before. Stranger danger. Exactly. Um, And that means that the child, again, has been taken and it's not anybody that they know. Which, if you think about it, that's really not that much. Like when you learn about, like you just said, stranger danger, you think if somebody's been abducted, you always think it's some weirdo in... Mm -hmm like a van or something like that who just came and like picked up your kids offered them candy but in reality it's mostly by somebody that they know or you know it might be a family member it might be like a friend of the family it might be a neighbor that they've talked to but i just wanted to preface this episode with that information to get your minds thinking Hmm, like maybe this could be an explanation for these cases. I don't know. I just thought that was a pretty interesting statistic and also terrifying. 800,000 children a year. Yeah. That's crazy. I mean, there's a lot of kids in the world though. There are, but that's a lot of abductions. Yes, absolutely. (laughs) Not great. Um, I just got done watching this horrific documentary on Netflix. We can't cover it on the show because it was not in the Southwest, but it's called Abducted in Plain Sight. Yeah. I don't know if you're familiar with that one. But basically, like, the guy is, like, best friends with the family, and he's also a pedophile. And he ends up, like, being super obsessed with their 12-year-old daughter. I think she was 12 or 13 or something like that. And he ends up, like, taking her one afternoon. He's just told the mom he was going to take her horseback riding. And she's like, all right, just make sure she's back before, you know, dinner or whatever. And then she's, like, missing for days and days and days. And... She ends up being, him and her end up being missing for like a total of like 32 days, I think it was the first time. And he took her down to Mexico and married her because back in the 70s, it was legal to marry a 12-year-old in Mexico. So, yeah, Yeah, that's terrifying. They're much more progressive these days with a consenting age of 14 in Mexico. (laughs) Um, Hey, I'm not talking, I don't, you know, consenting age, it is what it is. That's fine. But this guy was a straight up pedophile, so. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's creepy and weird and gross, but. That, I highly recommend that documentary if you ever got, you know, favorite time. I've heard about it before. I can't remember if I've heard a podcast on it or actually, I haven't actually watched it, but. It's terrifying. And the thing that pissed me off the most, not to go off on a tangent, I will wrap it up in just a second, but um, not only did this guy go off and marry her, like basically abduct her for 30 days in his motorhome, but then he came back. The family continued to stay in contact with these guys. The wife had an affair with him. 
the dad had an affair with him, had a homosexual affair with this guy. And then like a year and a half later, he abducted her again. Okay. <laughs> it's like, no, it was in Oklahoma. That's what it was. That's, that's why I can't do it. But yeah. I just, I was like, God, you guys are so gullible. What the fuck is going so on? So they say truth is stranger than fiction. Because if you made that up, people would be like, that's terrible, right? Yeah, that's that so stupid. Happened. But it, it did. <laughs> yeah. So anyways, Abducted in Plain Sight. Watch on Netflix if you can. Justin, if you don't have Netflix, you can always watch it with me. <laughs> I currently do have Netflix. I actually signed up for a 30-day free trial and they still charged me for two months. Really? Yeah. Assholes. I hate Netflix. Well, did you used to have it before? We don't I did, but I used, this right now. <laughs> I used a different email address. I had a different credit card and they were like, nope, we're charging you. Anyways. Anyways. Watch that then. Um, okay, so... With those facts aside, let's go ahead and jump into our first case. case is the ongoing investigation of Randy Layton Evers. Three-year-old Randy was asleep on the living room floor of his family's apartment on the night of February 15, 1992 in Las Vegas, Nevada. Randy was asleep despite the commotion in the apartment as his father Mike Evers and stepmother Tina were throwing a party for Mike's birthday. From what investigators gather, the events of the night unfolded similar to this. Several friends of the couples were over drinking and partying with the parents. At some point, Tina Evers left the party to go to a casino at around like 11.30 p.m. Mike continued partying on throughout the night until he eventually fell asleep in the back room with his one-year-old daughter. During this time, friends sort of came and went, and those who were too partied out, or basically way yeah. too drunk to get the heck out, uh, crashed in the living room of the Evers apartment. One friend was noted as falling asleep on the couch near Randy, according to Mike and Tina. Although it's difficult to say how accurate this account is since Tina had supposedly already left for the casino. And Mike was obviously very intoxicated and he like had already fallen asleep in the back room. So I'm not really sure how the police gathered this information. If they're kind of just piecing it together based on like the people that they talked to yeah, and filling in the blanks. But they did say something about how like Tina and Mike were both um, very adamant, as you'll see in a little bit, that this one guy was sleeping next to him. But then they kind of looped back around and they're like, well, how would you know if you were at the casino and he was asleep in the other room? So just a note. Uh, at any rate, when Tina returned home in the early hours of the morning from the casino, she noticed that Randy was no longer in the apartment and essentially he was like nowhere to be found. And she you know, immediately was like, what the heck is going on? At first she thought maybe he went into the other room, maybe the back bedroom, but they couldn't find him anywhere. Now this is where the story starts to get extremely frustrating for anyone who's like us and wants to know like the nitty gritty details of stories like this, because there's absolutely no source that I could find anywhere that would expand upon like what happened during the short time after police were called to report Randy as missing, you know? Yeah. They didn't say like, 
you know, um, Tina and Mike were doing this or they reacted this way. Like nobody could really give any details about what happened in these moments. And to me, th- these are crucial moments. Yeah. So it was a little bit frustrating to read, but there's no details on the whereabouts of the friend who was sleeping on the couch next to Randy earlier in the night, or if he was even like still there when Randy was discovered missing. And there was no account if any like other people who were attending the party and who had crashed at the apartment the night before were still there or like where they had gone if they weren't. So they didn't, they don't really like expand on this because my first thought when I hear this is like, oh, well, where's the guy who was sleeping next to him on the couch? Several people are coming and going who came and went. Yeah. So like what happened with those guys? And it's really not clear what happened to those guys in any of these stories. So it's very frustrating for me. But anyways... And as far as I can find, there was very little information given to the police about these people either. The only thing that I can even see was that the two persons of interest ever named in this case were Randy's father and his stepmother. So they didn't name this guy who was supposedly on the couch as a person of interest, which, you know, I'm like, they either interviewed him or they found some, like, messed up logic in Mike and Tina's story that made them believe, you know, it was more towards them. Yeah. I don't know. The reason for this was because immediately after Tina called the police to report Randy missing, they noted that Mike Evers showed very little concern for his son's disappearance at all. In fact, the police had to drag him out of bed to talk to him about the case when he learned that Randy was missing. Now, I know I've been, like, super hungover before (laughs) after partying, and I do not want to do anything, but if my son is missing, I don't give a fuck how bad your headache is. You get your ass out of bed. And you are very concerned. Like, adrenaline overrides all those other terrible feelings. So, yep. I don't know. Tina also seemed to be to have very little concern other than, like, initially calling them to report the boy missing. And the couple was noted as being, like, very uncooperative with police. And initially, they even refused to take polygraph tests. Which, I'm like, yeah, that's suspicious. I know that polygraphs are not the most accurate and i've said this a thousand times before just because you take a polygraph test does not really mean that you're telling the truth or not it just rates like your stress levels and if your child is missing and you're hysterical like you might score poorly on a polygraph even though you're 100 percent telling the truth but for them to be like super dismissive of the entire situation mike not even caring about it and then not wanting to do a polygraph test seems a little bit suspicious on their end yeah In an interview with one news source back in 1992, Tina stated that the couple had failed a polygraph test when they eventually agreed to taking one because they, quote, incorrectly answered questions about the boy's whereabouts. Now, the fact that she's coming out to a news source and telling them this, I don't know if she was doing it to try and point the finger at police and be like, they're saying that we did this, but we really don't know. But it certainly is backfiring on them because to me, if I read this, I'm just going to be like, why the fuck are you telling everybody you failed a polygraph test? Like you're Mm -hmm. not making yourself look any better. I don't know. When police interviewed the couple, they asked if the couple had owed any money to anybody to which, you know, the couple said, no, we don't owe anyone. Because that's the first thought, especially when you're in Vegas, there's a, there's a pretty high um, amount of drug trafficking going on there. Yeah, and there's crime families and yeah, I mean... The mob built the Vegas Strip. Exactly. So you don't know. You know, they could have gotten into some bad dealings. Not to say the mob kidnaps kids. They usually don't do that. But the point being is there is a seedy underbelly in Las Vegas that 
Yeah. People can easily Absolutely. get involved. Absolutely. So it's a valid question, but, you know, they were like, no, we don't owe anyone any money. The couple later became the center of a grand jury investigation, which they refused to testify in. And because of the lack of evidence in general with the case, the two were never charged in connection with Randy's disappearance. So they kind of just dropped it there. Like, we don't have enough evidence for or against this case for anything about this little boy. Yeah. So it kind of just went cold. Um, another major, major driving factor in thinking that the parents were involved were the inconsistencies, specifically in Tina's story. She gave um, to the investigators like this story about the events of the night before. And initially, the couple both corroborated the story that she had left for the casino and that Mike stayed home and continued to party before passing out in the back room. However... Later, when interviewed again by herself, Tina changed... I mean, she was interviewed by herself both times, but the second time, she's by herself. She didn't go in at the same time as Mike, and her story changed a little bit. Uh, She stated that around 11.30 that night, her, Mike, and several friends from the party left together to go to the casino, and they left Randy in the presence of an adult male friend who was passed out on the couch. When the couple returned home... At 3... I saw that look, Justin. When the couple returned home at 3.30 a.m., Randy was gone. But this story also didn't make a whole lot of sense. She never mentioned anything about the one-year-old daughter that they clearly had. Like, what did they do with her? Did they just leave her in the back room? Like, what happened? Or if the man was present or gone when they got home. Again, like like I said, no matter what, if somebody... Even if only one person went to the casino, like, if you're leaving this kid... Sleeping next to this guy on the couch, when you come home and the son is missing, is that dude there or is he not? Right. And they never really specify that. Um, it also begs the question, were, were they really this negligent to like leave their kids yeah. alone? Or were they trying to hide something more sinister that happened that night? And the reason that I think about this is like, okay, it's the early 90s, so I mean, I guess... I don't know. Stranger danger was still a really scary thing. And, you know, I was born in 90, so our parents would have never left us alone like that. But who knows? Like, maybe they were just more protective and these parents were more lenient. But I can't ever imagine leaving my three-year-old and one-year-old not only with just, like, a friend so we could go party. I mean, maybe. But somebody who's passed out, clearly intoxicated, like, this person is not able to take care of your children if they're passed yeah. out like they're not it's just like leaving them alone basically the, the, you didn't tell the guy that you were leaving like it just seems really negligent right. some people really are this bad of parents but then it also makes me wonder like are they just playing off that they were this bad of parents so people would think you know they didn't do something yeah worse. like ignorance well, is bliss or did they really have something else to do with it the other question i have is so they come home at three thirty and they discover the kids not there and then mike goes i'm gonna go to sleep and mm-hmm. he goes and lays down and goes to bed and the police have to pull him out of bed to talk to him yeah like, exactly if they both did go to that casino right. that doesn't make sense either i totally agree with you on that now to this day 25 years after his disappearance police have no leads in the case and not a clue as to what actually happened to randy evers investigators speculate that the parents knew much more and were involved in much more than they lead on to some theorize that they may have, um, that he may have been sold for drugs or to, like, settle a drug debt. Like I said, I don't know. I'm assuming that the parents were somewhat involved in drugs, if not selling drugs, then just drug usage for the police to really come to this conclusion. Right. There had to be, you don't just, 
a kid goes missing and then the police are like, yeah, ah, drugs. Like there had to have been a history or something had to have come up through talking to other people. I don't know. But this is kind of what they theorized had happened. Um, and then after the party had broken up, they thought that also maybe the child was killed either accidentally or intentionally and disposed of by the parents before the police were called. Which, I mean, yeah, that's possible. I don't yeah. know. It just It's so strange. This is The whole thing is so strange to me. However, with nobody, like, physical evidence or leads of any kind, they really can't do anything else but theorize on this. Like, yeah. like I said, there's just nothing. Several years after Randy's disappearance, the couple left Nevada, and then they later divorced in 1997. And uh, as bizarre as the initial story is, you might be able to draw your own conclusions based on, like, the information that you were given as to, like, the situation with these, you know, the yeah. family. You're probably thinking... Okay, this guy is stuck with his son from a previous relationship. Him and Tina are obviously more focused on having a good time and, you know, than not... They, they weren't being parents. They didn't want yeah. to be parents. They wanted to party it up and celebrate his birthday. Casey Anthony. He, basically. But they have Randy in their home probably because, like, the biological mother didn't want him or even worse, like, she was a worse parent than Mike was and he got stuck with him. But that actually wasn't the case at all. Randy did have a mother who cared very much for him by the name of Alexis Maynard. And get this, she actually had full custody of Randy at the time of his disappearance. Now, I could not find in any of my sources why Randy was with his father at this time, like if he was just visiting for a short period of time, or like she was allowing like a joint custody situation, uh, even though she had full custody of her son. Because the thing is, yeah. is that he, this they lived in Nevada, but she actually lived in California. So... You know how some of those, um, like, custody situations work where they have them for longer periods of time because of the states? I don't know if that was the case. I'm not really sure what was going on. But uh, to make the situation even worse for her, more than a week go had gone by before she was ever made aware that her son was missing, and she didn't learn it from Mike at all. Like, Mike did not say anything to her. Yeah, yeah I that's, know. <laughs> that's even more fucked up. Yeah, he just, he didn't say anything. She found out. When the FBI came knocking on her door, uh, she was in San Diego at the time visiting a friend, and the FBI came knocking at her door because they wanted to investigate whether or not she had taken him. Um, and although police initially thought that it was possible that she had maybe come in the middle of the night to take Randy back during this time, she was quickly ruled out as a suspect. She did not have him. She did not know that he was missing. It was yeah. very obvious that she had nothing to do with this. Uh, Alexia was obviously devastated by this news and took it extremely hard, which is more than you could say about his father and stepmother. Uh, in an interview with one news source, Maynard said that the experience of her son disappearing changed her as a person forever, and she had such a difficult time processing the traumatic event that she had difficulty raising her eldest daughter, who was eventually taken in by other family members, which is really sad. Um... She later went on to move to Texas and raise two other children without issue. 20 years would actually pass before investigators would officially follow up with her on her missing son, though. So after this, like, they didn't say anything to her about this yeah. case for another 20 years, which I think is Shit. just crazy. I can't, yeah. I can't even, I don't know. She was asked to provide a DNA sample back in 2012 because they thought they may have found Randy alive, but the sample ended up not matching, so that's a shame for yeah. her. Um, Mike Evers passed away in 2014, 
so we'll probably never hear anything from him. Yeah. Uh, and if Randy's still alive, he would be 22 today. He was last seen wearing black pajama shirt and black pants with like this blue diamond pattern on the knees. He had light strawberry blonde hair and blue eyes. Naturally, if you know anything about what transpired on the night of February 15th, 1992, or the whereabouts of Randy Evers, you are urged to share this information with the Las Vegas Police Department. We'll have their number, uh, as well as an alternative, like, anonymous contact, as we always yeah. do on our website. And, yeah. Our second case takes us to Madisonville, Texas, where on September 17th, 2016, a black suitcase was discovered alongside Interstate 45. In the suitcase were the remains of a little girl wrapped in large black trash bags. The girl was wearing a pink dress with butterfly designs on it, a pair of socks, and a size 4 Parents' Choice, which is a Walmart brand, diaper. But more interesting than her clothes was a feeding tube that was found in the suitcase with her. The girl was believed to be between 2 and 6 years of age and had been dead for 3 to 5 months before her actual discovery on the interstate. Oof. Yeah, really sad. Now they say two to six years for her age, which is a huge gap in age yeah. and like physical appearance, by the way. I was like, how, how is that possible? But here's why. The girl was believed to have a condition called um, micronathia, which is a condition that affects the size of the jaw development and yeah. thus renders you the need for assistance with eating. Like basically your jaws underdeveloped and so you can't ever eat on your own. Yeah. You have to be fed through a feeding tube forever. That makes sense. So with that, um, th you know, they're thinking like maybe malnourishment or just like they aren't growing as quickly because you're not getting the same amount of nutrients. Yeah. And so that age gap is kind of taken into account there. And this was also based on the examination of the skull, as well as the discovery of that feeding tube with the body. Yeah. But the reason for the huge age range is because it's possible that the girl was much older than her appearance of like, she looked like she was probably around two years old, but they think not only could she have been like malnourished just from this condition, but they think that she could have been severely malnourished from neglect Again, she had this condition and she would need constant care throughout her life. And if somebody didn't want to take care of her or wasn't doing their due diligence to take care of her, yeah. like this could have been a result of it. Upon initial discovery of the body, information was released to the public to try and help identify the child. But really, like very few leads came in of any value at all. Nobody really had a clue as to who this little girl was. Forensics continued working several angles to try and gather more information on this little girl, including using a CT scan of the skull to render a 3D image of what she may have looked like, since the body was already pretty badly decomposed when she was discovered. Um, the pictures are actually pretty remarkable, and we have them up on the website for you to check out, but it, I mean, you can definitely see a little girl looking like that. You yeah. can see, you know, like from what they had, which is basically a decomposed skull with like yeah. some hair on it. They did a pretty good job. I was impressed. Yeah. Um, the child was noted to have thick brown hair and was initially thought to be Caucasian or Hispanic descent. But after DNA genealogy was performed, uh, she was found to actually be of Native American descent. Hmm. Pollen taken from the girl's clothing and hair were analyzed and found that she was most likely from or spent time in southeastern Arizona 
southwestern New Mexico or northern Mexico in that adjacent area. Although forensics believe strongly that she was probably in southeastern Arizona. They think that's where she probably was from. Um, After this information was given to the public, several leads came in, including a woman from Tucson, which makes sense, who claimed that she hadn't seen her granddaughter since 2015. But further investigation proved that it was not the same girl as the one that the lady was talking about. Uh, It's been almost four years since the discovery of the Madison County Jane Doe, and still nobody knows who this little girl is or what actually happened to her. Investigators believe the child was probably being neglected, and she either died from neglect itself or from intentional death as a result of the parents or caretakers, like, not wanting to care for her anymore because she required quite a bit of care just because of her condition. Um, And, yeah, that's... I mean, that's kind of all that we have on that one. That one is super sad to me because it's like, very rarely do you... I don't want to say very rarely do you have Jane and John does because we get them all the time, but very rarely do you have something like this with a child. Right. Because with adults, it's... People aren't taking... I don't know how to describe it. People aren't keeping a, as many tabs on them, right. I guess you could say. If a person goes missing, they if an adult goes missing, that could just be they just picked up and moved and left and it's yeah. not it happens. It's not that unusual. Yeah, like, like it puts that little bit of doubt in the back of your head. It's like maybe they just ran off. Yeah. Maybe they just went off. But you know that a two to six year old is not gonna do right. that. When like, a, when a small child goes missing, there's foul play. Yeah. Um, pretty much every time except for like the when they go to pack a teddy bear and go, I'm running away from home and they yeah. go to like Safeway. Like yeah. it, <laughs> I know. So this is extremely sad of a yeah. case for well, me. That and it, it's also extra sad is like why would you kill your kid or let your kid die if they have a special needs or disability? Yeah. Because there are so many programs out there to help take care of those children or you could put them up for adoption and there are people out there who would take those kids and there's people out there who take care of them and not mistreat them because it murder isn't the solution for anything well not only that you're creating a huge problem for yourself like don't you think other people are going to notice that your child who requires a feeding tube is no longer present and you didn't have a funeral for them and you didn't like what the fuck do you think is going to happen right I don't, it, I don't get it. It just, it doesn't, that doesn't make sense. Like, there's just something in my brain that seems to not be in some, some people's brains that, like, when I have a problem, I don't go, maybe I should kill Murder. someone. Right. Murder, like, it's always a solution. Yeah, that's not the, like, for me, that's the, never do that because that creates way more problems for you. It does. It <laughs> I does. I, I don't know. It's just I terrible. I think the lesson of any of these stories and any week that we spend is murder is not the solution. Right. It's not. Right. It doesn't help. If it's a crime of passion, if it is a crime that you have been planning for a long time, if you're bored, if you don't want to take care of them anymore, or if you're just psychopath, it's not the solution. Right. Sorry, guys. Um, Of course, if you know anything or you think you know anything about this Jane Doe case, please contact either Madison County Police Department or the Center for Missing and Exploited Children at 1-800-THE-LOST. We will also have this stuff up on the website, so don't fret if you missed that. Um, And if you're like me and wondering if there's anything else that you could possibly do to help out with cases like this, even though you don't have any information, you actually can. And this is where I'm going to get on my little soapbox, Justin, so just hold on now. Uh, So remember how I mentioned that they did that ethnicity testing 
Uh, and it was determined by running her DNA through a genealogy report. Yep. Well, like me, so many of you out there have had these genealogy reports done through companies like 23andMe or Ancestry.com just for the heck of it. Like I got mine for a birthday present and yeah. I was totally stoked. Um, you've done yours. Practically like half of our family has done theirs at this point, which is awesome. But did you know that you could actually opt into a database for law enforcement to test your DNA results against DNA of other suspects of violent crimes, which they have DNA, but they don't necessarily have the person in like the CODIS, that database yeah. where they're convicted felons or victims of crime to help identify them. Mm -hmm. So this method is already being put into use and was how they actually apprehended the Golden State Killer. That's what it's most famous for. Yeah. Uh, after years of his case going cold because he just straight up stopped killing for many, many, many years. And yeah. then they finally like found a cousin of his who did genealogy and they ran it through there and they're like, oh shit, like this guy is yeah. related to this person and who did a 23andMe, yep. you know? So they hit this database with the DNA from the crimes. They got the match of his distant relative, and they were eventually able to track him down. And, like, you know, he's in prison now. Yeah. He's um, currently seeing trial, though, isn't he? Yes. Like, there's still trial, ongoing trials. But Yes, he hasn't been. Because he was just found in, like, the end of 2018, I want to say. I thought it was early 2019. It might have been early. I he think might it was be early correct. 2019, but he, he basically, like... As soon as the police arrested him, he just stopped talking. Because yeah. that's the thing is once he... Well, they he's... know you, he, yeah. you got him. But he, he's, when he stopped killing, he was like, all right, cool, I'm done with this. Right, like, and he whatever. just moved on. Yeah, and then they catch him and he's like, I'm not, I'm not going to talk to the police. I'm not going to cooperate. Like, that's the weird <laughs> thing about him, though, because most serial killers, they even though they tell. have a... Yeah, they have mm -hmm. a dormant period and then they go back on it. And as soon as they get caught, they're like, well... Let me just tell yeah. you everything. Yeah, well, he's unusual in two reasons. One of them is that because he doesn't want to talk at all. He doesn't want to, like, gloat. Um, but the other reason is because he, most, like you said, most serial killers will have a downtime and then they go back into their, like, berserker mode of going crazy. Yeah. He just straight up stopped. And he had, mm -hmm. like, absolutely no intention. He stopped for, what was it, like, 20 years or yeah, 30 or something like that. And as far as they could tell, like, he had no intention of killing another person again. Yeah. He was just going to live his life out. And that's very unusual yep. like usually they don't go that far btk was probably one of the only other cases where he just kind of stopped stopped doing it or went for long periods and of time part of the reason he stopped i think was because he like i think he was running out of creativity with btk he was <laughs> couldn't writing, any more poems he couldn't write know? any more poems but like as soon as <laughs> As soon as people stopped talking about him, he was like, I need to get my name back out in the news. But he didn't want to kill someone again because he had so much going on. He couldn't get yeah. away. So he that's that's how he got caught was like, he was like, if I give the police a floppy disk, could they trace it? And they were like, no. And he <laughs> gave it to him and then they traced it back to him. And he was like, fuck. Yeah. That was. And you know what yeah. I think about this? entire situation with the golden state killer i bet he's just sitting there in his jail cell right now being like fucking cousin fred or whatever yeah. like why the hell did you have to go mm -hmm. and do that but good. Uh, <laughs> but good for him right yeah good um, for the cousin not golden exactly state killer. yes good for the, the cousin or whoever it was i don't know if it was a male or female i really don't but anyways off of our tangent the database that i'm talking about or that i use is actually called ged match <clears throat> and what you do is you create a profile you upload your raw data because, like, for me, I did 23andMe. I also have Ancestry, but I just use my 23andMe. You can go onto your 23andMe account, say, download your raw data, and it will, like, literally give you, like, the... If you were going to sequence your genes and look at it from a biology standpoint, and it gives you all the A's and the T's and stuff like yeah. that, like, that's what it is. 
you get the raw data from this website and then you choose which parts of the information that you want to share. So you don't have to give all of your information if you don't want to. You can just choose from this thing like, do you want law enforcement to view your DNA? Are you okay with GED match using your DNA for research? Because they do research and do, they do other things with DNA information aside from just helping law enforcement. It helps like better the algorithms and things like that. Uh, and if privacy is a concern to you, because it is for a lot of people, they're not so willy-nilly to give up their DNA like I am. Um, they, they are like extremely transparent. They have a very easy to understand document that covers what they do and do not do with your DNA results, what your options are to opt in and out of, and like exactly in plain English what their privacy policies are. So if you're interested in checking that out, you know, that's cool. Um, if you end up not wanting to do this, that's totally fine too. No shame in that. But seriously, genealogy matches are the forensics of the future. Like when I say we are going to solve so many crimes this oh, way, yeah. we're going to. This is the way of the future. It's because like if you as an individual commit the crime and you're not able to hide as well from anyone who shares genealogy sites, then like it's perfect because it's it's incredibly phenomenal. Like you could go, not that you ever would, Justin, but you could go out right now, murder somebody, cover your tracks because you're this amazing person. We'll never, ever, ever find you. You're not in CODIS because you've never had a felony. You've never had to have your DNA run, anything like that. But because I have my DNA in this database, they link it up to this and they're like, boom, he has a sister who did 23andMe. They find me, they find you. That's amazing because it has nothing to do with the actual person. Justin's giving me shifty. Uh. <laughs> it has nothing to do with the actual person at this point. It's anybody that they're related to that has their information. And all you have to do is just make it available at this database. So yeah. if that's something you're interested in, we will have a link to GED Match on our website for you to check out. And yeah, that end of soapbox. <laughs> I believe mine is on there as well. I don't... I guess I have to go into my 23andMe settings and be like, share it. But they keep sending me emails. Yeah, so you can share that way. But you actually have to go into this physical, it's called gedmatch.com. Okay. And you physically go in there, you make an account, and then you upload that raw data. Because gotcha. you're giving this place like permission to let law enforcement. But this is the exact website that helped find the Golden State Killer. And it helps find a couple of other um, less prominent killers or yeah. suspects but still i mean i'm serious this is way of the future i'm so excited about it yeah, <laughs> so cool. yeah anyways that's all we got for you today folks tune in next week for another full length episode subscribe on apple Podcasts, google Podcasts, soundcloud and stitcher like us on facebook follow us on instagram and twitter and as always until next time be careful out there and don't get kidnapped and also as we said our mantra of the day is murder is never the answer exactly <laughs> Bye. Bye. This has been a Strangely Dangerous production. Stay strange. Stay dangerous.